welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. We have a saying in the South, where I'm from. We say, someone is a pistol. It applies only to women. It means that a lady is fearless, independent, fun as heck to be around, and sometimes a little unpredictable. Often as not, it also means that the lady in question is a pretty good shot, too. As I was reading Jane Bardall's new book, I couldn't help but wonder if someone who never even set foot in the South might have given us that turn of phrase. It's hard to say, but worth asking just the same. After all, look up pistol in the dictionary, and don't be surprised if you see a picture of Ellen Jack. Jane's book is called Colorado's Mrs. Captain Ellen Jack. Mining Queen of the Rockies. And as we continue our series on new releases from the History Press, we're excited to have Jane join us for the next few weeks as we follow Captain Jack on her adventures. If you tuned in to our last few episodes, we've been exploring the lost treasure of the California hills with Craig Rains, but now we're headed over the ridgeline, deep into the Colorado mountainside. Saddle up, folks. We ride at dawn. Jane, welcome to Crime Capsule, and congratulations on your new book. Thank you. It's great to be here. Tell us a little bit about your background. Before we dive into Captain Jack, uh, you are a native of Minnesota, and you've now lived in New Mexico for a number of years. Uh, Tell us about yourself. My background is actually in psychology, so I've taught psychology in the New Mexico educational system for 30 years, and I'm in the midst of retirement now. I spent most of my years at the community college here in Albuquerque. So my pathway into writing a book was maybe a little bit unusual. It actually came from being a postcard collector. And I was at a meeting of the postcard club and a couple of people brought in their books by Arcadia. And I just thought, well, that's interesting. And then they were looking for authors and I thought, well, I could do that. And so that's how I got started on my first book, Southwestern New Mexico Mining Towns. And I had a lot of postcards myself. And due to other connections in the club, there were other people who made major contributions in terms of lending me their postcards for use. And so after I finished that project, I was wondering, well, what's next? And I had several (laughs) of Captain Jack's postcards. And so I really just started with who is she? And trying to find out uh, the answer to that question. And the more I looked, the more I found. And so that was a journey that took several years to go through all of her cases. And she got herself into a lot of trouble. And so there was a lot to find. And so that's how I got going through that. And um, also, my interest in mining is mainly through like rock and mineral collecting. So uh, that was an influence that Put, put me in that direction as well. It sounds like you have these two streams which are converging uh, to create one larger river, right? Which is the creation of, of this particular uh, volume. You know, some of our listeners may not be fully aware that the 
the visual side of history has long been a strength of Arcadia and the history press and that their Images of America series, which has been going for decades, seeks to compile, you know, historic photographs or postcards in some cases and, you know, really give the, the look to the story that we might otherwise have read. So how interesting that you would enter publishing through that particular route. Yeah, I think that's a little bit unusual. I'm not a historian, so I don't make any claims to be, but I like writing stories about people. And so I think my background as a psychologist comes in there. And that's what I found interesting about Captain Jack and even some of the other stories I told in um, my other book as well. Well, you certainly wrote about what is unquestionably the golden age of mining uh, in American history. And what a fascinating person to get to follow through these old highways and byways and trails and so forth. I mean, Captain Jack is, she's one of a kind, isn't she? Yeah, she's a, a very unique person in, in many ways, you could say. And that was what was interesting about her, just um, the fact that she was a fighter and uh got herself into a lot of trouble. Uh, and so she had to fight in some cases to try to make a profit from her mines. But then uh, some of her fighting, you know, she she got herself into some uh, kind of nasty conflicts later on in her life as well. So you first met her through these postcards. And you had you ever heard of her before that, that moment where you, I mean, the postcards that you reproduce in the book are marvelous. And we'll talk about those for sure, because they, they really are such a huge part of her own story and her own uh, sort of image of herself, the creation of her own personal myth. But did, were you just at these sort of gatherings and you, you see this lady and you'd never seen her before in your life and you think, who is she? What is her story? How, I mean, was this your first encounter? Yeah, really the postcards were my first encounter. And I quickly discovered that she had written an autobiography. And so that was a starting point. Um, but her autobiography, I think, is um, it's interesting. And it's really the source material for anything you might find on the internet today about her. So a lot of people really over the years repeated her story from her autobiography. So there's quite a bit out there of people go looking for that. But um, it's kind of a partial story. So she'll mention a few things. And then I wondered, well, what's that about? So I had to research, you know, what's the background on, say, divorce in Colorado in the late 1800s? Or how about the widow's pension system that really allowed her a pension to go out west and find her fortune? So some financial uh, backing there. And so that's where uh, a lot of the story is kind of hard to understand without some background. And also then the other thing is some of her stories were just so fantastic. I thought, is this true? Because we're kind of used to a teller of tall tales, of course. And she did tell some things that were not true, but I actually found that the bulk of the material she wrote about was true uh, to the extent that I could confirm. Now, some stories are just so individual, you can't confirm nor deny them. But most of what I found that she wrote was true. You do. You write early on that there's a grain of salt that you have to take as you read her account. As with any autobiography, there's going to be selective framing, you know, kind of curated omissions, you know, that sort of thing. So I think I think we as your your readers are well prepared for the fact that there's um, it's her perspective on her life, but it may not match up 
you know, what is truth, as they say, right? <laughs> yeah. Probably the biggest discrepancy I found is that she claimed to have shot uh, several people in many different incidents. And uh, there's evidence that she actually did make very credible threats against other people, but there's no evidence that she actually even fired any shots. So um, I think her threats to kill other people were quite believable, but uh, she didn't actually carry through on those, which is what she says in her autobiography, but I could not find in any other sources. Well, let's begin at the very beginning. Uh, one of the most interesting things I, I, I think about Captain Jack being the, the most famous lady prospector in America of her day was that she was not, in fact, born in America. She was English, as you write. Uh, so she, how was it that she came to this country? She grew up in England and then immigrated as a young woman. What, what happened there? So one of the early influences on her is she credits a fortune teller with uh, telling her when she was a young girl that she was born to find hidden treasure. She met Charles Jack, who was the captain of a ship. They got married in England, and then she followed him to Brooklyn, New York, where they lived and had uh, four children. And he served in the Civil War. And following the Civil War, he died of injuries related to his service. And so it was after that point, uh, three of her children had died. She placed a, her other child with relatives, and she went to Colorado to find her fortune. Which is a, a fairly, um, it's interesting because there's this sort of incredibly important part of her life before she gets to Colorado, right? And then, but but we only get like the smallest glimpse of that. And when we really join her, it's almost like she's she's already loaded up the mule, she's on the trail, you know, the vast majority of all the information that we have about her life comes at the, the starting point, it's sort of like 30 years in or something like that. So really fascinating the way that you that you kind of frame that. But just help us to understand where the name Captain Jack came from, of course, because that can be a little confusing to folks who didn't quite pick up on the, on the sequence there. So Charles Jack was her husband, and he went by Captain Jack. So it appears that after he died, that she took on that name for herself. And she ran a business on Coney Island in New York, and she was referred to as Captain Jack there. So she had that name or title before she went to Colorado. And then in Colorado, she was oftentimes referred to as Captain Jack by other people. So you do see that in the historic record. And then in a lot of the official newspaper accounts, they would use, you know, Ellen Jack. Now, we're not going to sugarcoat this, um, <laughs> because you don't sugarcoat this in your book. Almost from the moment that she arrives in Colorado, she gets into hot water. I mean, she she has a unique way about her where being very feisty, being very independent, um, being very unafraid to defend herself and stand up for herself, it just leads to some scrapes. And the, I think one of the things I loved most about your book, Jane, is that it starts off effectively with a bar brawl. I mean, it's like one of the great cinematic sequences that you would get in you know, the old films from the 60s. Or like The saloon doors are literally swinging open and someone is flying out into the dusty street, you know, like with pieces of a broken chair, you know, kind of flying after them. It, it's wonderful. <laughs> 
what what happened? What did she do? Like, what? How did she get into so much trouble that fast? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Well, Gunnison in eighteen eighty was a a wild place. You know, all these people coming from all over, and um, she ran a saloon and boarding house, and so she found out from some of her boarders about some of the mining activity. And what I find interesting about that story as well is that um, by the end of her life in Colorado Springs, she claimed that she had this scar on her forehead from a tomahawk blow by uh, a fight with Indians, Native Americans. And uh, that's one of her stories that I just found no evidence to support. But I did find uh, this story about the bar brawl. And it's interesting um, how it came about the story. I, I have to thank all the archivists and uh, people who helped me find all these really hidden records. And he's one of the county officials in Gunnison gave me access to the records that were in the basement of the Gunnison uh, courthouse area. Oh, that's a treasure right there. Oh, what a find. Well, it was. And uh, I spent a lot of hours just digging through court records. And that's where I found the details of this case. So, you know, what happened was she, she writes about this in her autobiography, but she describes it as Indians coming to take the town. And that was not true. So um, there was a lot of conflict with Native Americans, and uh, I put part of that story in there as background and understanding of that. But what actually happened was four Frenchmen came into her bar, and hot, you know, hot words were exchanged, and there was a fight that ensued because the Frenchmen didn't pay their bar bill, and uh, Captain Jack took part in the fighting, and she got a beer bottle smashed across her forehead, and that's how she got that scar uh, that she would have for the rest of her life. So um, that's what really happened. Um, she never fought Indians, although she uh, later claimed that later on in her life as part of a Colorado pioneer. Uh, and so uh, the true story is just that she got into this bar fight. So it's important to note here, just for context, that Gunnison, Colorado, in the 1880s, it is, it is the West— it is not quite the sort of the wild west of imagination in that you write very clearly that there is a, a good bit of infrastructure set up in this town already. I mean, you have a press, you have a, a, a sort of news entity which is publishing about strikes and claims and, you know, things going on in town. And you do have a legal system, right? And it was, what was really interesting about this particular sequence is that you actually are able to see the mechanism of the legal system at work. I mean, there's magistrate judges that she's going before their hearings and investigations and inquests. And yeah, okay, maybe some of these folks are a little on the take, depending on who the whose mind is really producing, you know, <laughs> at that particular moment. But, you know, rather than it being completely lawless, one of the kind of unique ironies about uh, Captain Jack's life, and it's really from the from the get-go, is that we learn a lot about her life from her dealings with the legal system, don't we? So what I would be interested to know then is how, and maybe I've just missed something in your book, but um, how is it that she ended up so quickly then with 
her second husband, who may or may not have been her actual husband, who is also involved in these this bar brawl, this saloon fight, this uh, sort of legal peril that she gets in, because she actually does lose the case, uh, the lose the suit against the the Frenchman, right? I mean, she's found partially at fault, you know, in the whole scrape. But out of this comes this strange relationship with with Jeff that then kind of characterizes the next few years of her life and not necessarily happily so? Yeah, she met him on the way into Gunnison. And um, I think she she quickly found that it was kind of a perilous existence. She, she doesn't seem to have traveled to Gunnison with anyone. Uh, she does not mention anyone, and I couldn't find any evidence that she actually went there with anyone, which is, again, kind of an unusual situation for a woman to travel west. And even a lot of men traveled with uh, relatives or friends or somebody. Um, but she doesn't say who she traveled with at all, um, so I'm not sure that she did. And so she gets involved with Jeff Mickey, and they set up a, a the saloon and boarding house. It's called Jack's Cabin. And so... Um, he he was a saloon keeper there, and yeah, that was a very tumultuous relationship. Um, and I don't know if you want me to talk about what happened with them, or I think it's worth mentioning because you know, as we look at many of the relationships over her life, we see that she once she gets entangled with somebody. We're going to talk about the minds in a minute, but but just as far as these people that she's forming relationships with as she enters the Colorado mining scene, the, the thing that is so fascinating about her life, Jane, is that when she forms a relationship with someone, it's almost like she is then sort of wedded to them in some way for the next 50 years. And maybe that has something to do with the uh, how sort of small and and close-knit the mining community is and everybody is kind of eavesdropping and forming deals and breaking deals and that sort of thing. You know, that that part is a little beyond me, but but I'm interested in the fact that like you have so many of these people who enter her life early on that she is just then in and out of dealings with until she dies. And Jeff Jeff is an interesting case. Her lawyer, of course, is an interesting case. But, you know, there's this sort of longevity to to those attachments that even after they become say very toxic, you know, attachments or the relationships go sour, these she can't escape these people, right? And that, but that that provides, I think, a lot of narrative energy to your book. Is that you know, when is the next time that evil second husband is going to show up, <laughs> right, and try to dynamite her while she is sleeping? Yeah, that that was uh, Redmond Walsh. So she she actually had a series of relationships. So Jeff Mickey, um, certainly a troubled character. She says that he was a drummer boy in the Civil War. And the time period would have fit. I didn't find any confirmation of that records, but it may explain why he uh, was was using uh, opium. So that's what he uh, eventually used to take his life with. And so following Jeff Mickey's death, uh, she gets married to Redmond Walsh, and she says that he get, she gets married to him primarily uh, because she wanted protection as a single woman. And in running a boarding house, that certainly would have been important that she, you know, not be taken advantage of. But um, 
she certainly had a troubled relationship with Redmond Walsh, and uh, that was a very difficult relationship as well. Uh, and so, yeah, that one keeps coming up uh, at several points for a few years. Science! 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 Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. I mean, there are so many colorful characters in this particular <laughs> <laughs> account that uh, sometimes it's actually hard to keep them all straight. It's like, who is the next person that's going to try to literally blow her up while she's sleeping? Yes. I, I was kind of charmed by that, um, by that recurrence in the narrative. Now, there's this moment where uh, it's fairly early on in the book where you actually use some of your psychological training uh, in order to, to get a view onto... Uh, to Ellen, to Captain Jack, and you write about the role of retrospective assessments of a marriage. And I thought that was really interesting because, you know, you're sort of suggesting that as time goes by, people will form different takes on the thing that they were in, which would stand in some stark contrast to the thing that they are in if you ask them about it now, right? I mean, her view on her marriage to Jeff, marriage in sort of quotes, because you write that there's some legal uh, sort of ambiguity around their, their sort of status there. But um, her her marriage to Jeff, while it was going on, was contentious. But while she was married, she would have said one thing. After he died, and after she'd moved on, and was sort of looking back on her marriage to Jeff, this is husband number two, um, she would have said something different about that. And I was just curious, how much of your psychological training as a researcher and a professor and so forth, did you actually have to bring to bear on the Captain Jack story? Well, I did like putting in uh, a few things like that, maybe as a way of possible partial explanation. Um, psychologists pretty stick pretty close to the facts in terms of research. So it's, it's a bit of a um, connection there to then use that to interpret a story, but that's kind of what I liked doing. And so my uh, minor area of, re of research in psychology is cognitive or memory. And so um, that's kind of the lens through which I interpreted some of what uh, she was doing. And so uh, with Jeff Mickey, she never admits to being married to him in her autobiography because um, she didn't admit to any illegal actions, which I think it's pretty obvious to see that in writing an autobiography, you wouldn't say, well, hey, you know, 20 years ago, I was breaking the law. So <laughs> she, um, so there's some reasons why uh, someone would write 
something a certain way while she's still alive. Um, so that, that formed part of my interpretation as far as uh, looking at why she wouldn't admit to uh, ever marrying Jeff Mickey. And it's not really clear that she ever did. There's only one court document that indicated that they were married. And then uh, she would not have wanted to admit to that because her second, her third husband, Redmond Walsh, would turn her in for pension fraud. And he said that she was married to Jeff Mickey and should have given up her pension. But uh, that's why she would not have, there were, there were extreme consequences to admitting that she had been married to Jeff Mickey. So it may have been just a common law arrangement. We don't really know. Uh, certainly it's clear that she was with him. And then as far as the way she tells the story about getting married to Redmond Walsh is probably the most unromantic story of getting married you could <laughs> come up with that, you know, she, she, she claimed to like hear these voices. Um, and she was kind of an unusual character in that way. And she says that uh, like her dead children talk to her and, and you kind of have to understand spiritualism, the idea at the time that we could communicate with dead people. And it was a very common belief among many people. And so you know, she when she's getting married to Redmond Walsh, which they went to Denver for, um, she says that, you know, a voice uh, shouted no, and the ring was flung to the floor by unseen hands. And apparently they didn't have much of a honeymoon because she returned to Gunnison. And uh, it's, it's a very unromantic accounting. And, you know, she's writing this probably in the early 1900s. So probably 20 or so years later. And so, you know, once a marriage goes south, people tend to uh, remember all the bad things. And that actually comes from psychological studies that have, have looked at that idea. And so that's my, you know, I didn't put a lot in there. I didn't go into describing the studies because I didn't want to get sidetracked. But there are those points where uh, some of the, those comments really come from psychological research. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit more about that next week once we get into the idea of her sort of creation of her own mythos, you know, which I think is really important here and uh, a major thread throughout her life. But uh, as far as the dynamiting goes, we are not going to spoil for our listeners the pleasure of reading your book and learning about husband number three trying to dynamite her while, while she slept. So... Uh, for that, you do have to buy the book, everybody out there in in podcast land. But let's talk about the mine, the first big hit, the Black Queen. I mean, she has been prospecting. She's running her boarding house. She's kind of making her living, you know, getting getting some income here and there, you know, in town. But deep down, she really wants to be out there, pick and shovel and mule and finding these these strikes like everybody in Gunnison in uh, in that era. So tell us about the discovery of the Black Queen mine and how that changed her life. Well, the way she tells the story in her autobiography, she says that she was out prospecting and that she discovered a silver vein and she went to talk to the people who own some nearby territory and she bought the claim from them. According to the actual record, she uh, bought the claim in February of 1884, and I suspect she may have just bought the claim from uh, some people who were in the town of Gunnison, because uh, nobody would be prospecting in February 
uh, at that location. So that's probably what happened. And also when I researched the earlier history of the mine, the mine had actually been discovered back in 1881, and the vein had been worked off and on by a few other people. Uh, and sometimes when you discover, especially silver, um, you don't really know what you have. I mean, you have something that looks like it contains some mineral, but it has to. it's kind of a long process. You have to take it to an assayer. Uh, you have to dig out a sufficient amount to see if you actually have anything. So it's not a simple mine. It's not a simple matter to just say, okay, well, I struck it rich now. Uh, it's actually kind of a long involved process. And so um, I think her saying that she discovered the mine uh, may or may not be true. She may or may she may or may not have been prospecting there. But what is clear is that she did buy a half interest in the mine. And so that started her um, ownership of that mine. And then the following summer is when it was further developed by her co-owners and other miners who were working it, and that's when it really began to take off. Uh, the Rocky Mountain News called it a mineral wonder, and so that's where she started uh, receiving some income from the mine and started looking for someone to buy it as well. So that's where she would have been making her profit. You have so much detail in your book, and the detail is wonderful. Would you just sort of take us through what that process of you know, what What does she see that strikes her interest or what, what glint is coming up out of the ground or, you know, when she's out there on the trail and she thinks she has found something, how does a prospector know at that moment that they are actually onto what could be a productive vein there? Because a, a lot of this, so much mining is now industrialized and sort of corporatized now. I mean, the, the, the days of the, the solo prospector are in many uh, cases, at least in that region, um, you know, with that technology, those are over, right? So can you help us to sort of see what she was doing out on these trails in on a day-to-day -day level? Yeah, well, typically what someone would do is just look for some kind of mineralized ground. So you have all your host rock, you know, in hard rock mining, uh, you have much of the rock that might be cut by mineral veins, for example. So you would try to look for some outcropping of a mineral vein and then do some digging to see, is it going to continue? Does it last? Is it anything substantial? Uh, placer mining for gold is a whole lot easier. You just go into a stream and pan for gold. I think people are probably more familiar with that, but uh, silver, silver mining is a little bit more complex. And so that's why it's not an easy matter at first to, d to know if you really have much of anything. So that's primarily what she would be doing just, you know, covering the train. Uh, there were a lot of people out doing this uh, by some newspaper reports in the area around uh, Crystal. You know, there could have been anywhere from, you know, 500 to 1,000 people just scouring the hills. It's hard to know whether newspaper accounts are really all that accurate because the numbers tend to be inflated. But at least, you know, quite a few people were out trying to discover mineral veins. And then once someone found a vein, they would stake the claim. And then they would have to go uh, back to Gunnison, which is quite a long distance and over difficult terrain to record the, the claim at the county seat. So that would be the, the process for staking a claim. Okay. Now, this, of course, becomes a site 
or a point of major contention over the whole of your book and over the whole of her life because uh, claim staking is not a straightforward process when you have different people with, you know, word of mouth issues or I was here first or, you know, the threat of violence, you know, that sort of thing. Um, There is also a lag time between the moment at which you I guess, plant your flag in the ground and then you have to get back to Gunnison and then get back to the claim after you've resupplied and so forth. That could be days or weeks, uh, in which case somebody could have moved in on that claim. I mean, it's not it's not pretty. It's not clean, right? It's a very messy scenario kind of all around, isn't it? Yes. And so that's where she got into conflict. One of the first areas of conflict was once the mine started producing good-looking silver ore, in the summer, um, the claimant next door said, well, hey, that's really coming from my claim. And he tried to, uh, he filed lawsuits and tried to say that that was really his or several times in the ensuing years, but he ended up uh, not winning that suit. But that was a fairly common occurrence. And she had that happen to her later as well, that, you know, she would find something and then someone else would say, hey, you know, that's really mine. And I think that was a pretty common process. And then they would uh, go to the court system, and oftentimes the only one who would really come out ahead there would be the lawyers, uh, <laughs> because they would take advantage of people's inclination to fight over whose or it really was. And uh, in some cases, you know, they would make a lot of money off of that process. Now, on average, and I'm sure there are different ways of looking at this, but on average, when you stake a claim, how much surface area or how big is a claim? Is it sort of 50 by 100 feet as a rule or is it sort of, is it measured by sort of visual markers, this pine tree to, to that spruce tree? Or, you know, I mean, how do you, how do you say, you know, this here belongs to me and not to you without, you know, uh, immediately resorting to fisticuffs or bellies full of lead? The Mining Law of 1872 set out all the requirements for staking a claim. And I can't remember the exact dimensions. I should probably know that offhand. But, um, you know, a claim was basically a big rectangle. Now, the problem with that is that what happens when you're on the steep side of a mountain? How do you stake a rectangular claim? It was not really an easy thing to set out the boundaries. And, you know, they did have mineral surveyors who would come along and Uh, make it more official as to where one claim started and the other ended. Uh, The other complication in the mining law is that a mine owner, if the vein outcropped on their claim, they could follow it even if underground it went into another person's claim, if you consider another person's claim going straight down into the ground. But um, that's where a lot of the conflict came into being because then there were lots of disputes over, well, is this does this belong to the Black Queen or does it belong to the neighboring claim? And so that's where a lot of the lawsuits came about. So You describe that maybe after some of that has been settled, when you have a verifiable ownership of a claim, say, and it's time to move on to phase two of the mining operation, you describe that there is a process of sinking a shaft down into the ground. Now, I was curious about this with respect to Captain Jack, because here she is, you know, a lady working out there alone prospecting uh, on the Black Queen. When did she manage to acquire, or how long was it before she could get the resources and the team to 
really undertake such a complicated engineering measure because sinking a shaft to get down into the actual side of the mountain, I mean, I don't know if anyone could do that by themselves, right? That's got to be very, very complicated. So how does that work? Well, she had one of her co-owners named Joe George Farnham, and he was a practical miner, so he would have been in charge of the actual work. And uh, so then there were probably a handful of other men who would have done the actual work. Um, so there's, she probably did not do much, if any, of the actual, uh, you know, blasting and drilling and taking out the ore itself. Uh, she was too busy with her uh, saloon outing, both in Gunnison and then when she moved to Aspen. So in the fall of 1884, she moved into Aspen. So she was pretty much involved with her business enterprises there, so to speak. Uh, she was accused of running a brothel in Aspen. Um, and so she was pretty busy with whatever saloon operation she was doing in Aspen. So she would not have done the actual mining there. Um, now, in one of her other operations, uh, she was she did some of the mining in terms of that actual physical work uh, of you know, blasting and drilling and mucking it out and taking out the ore. So she did that at some of her mines. But most of the work would have been done by other men that she hired. Well, it's interesting because, you know, they always say diversify your income sources, right? And she's a shrewd lady. She right. she knows how to, <laughs> to protect herself financially. And she is doing exactly that. I mean, she's got this income producing entity over on the Black Queen, which is, um, you know, it's not quite the mother load in the way that everybody, all of the mining hype sort of made, made a lot of these strikes out to be. There's so much hype at that, in that area. It's, it's, it's absolutely hilarious just to read it, but, um, you know, it's still producing. It, it, it is actually a source of income for her. And for the first couple of years, business is pretty decent, right? And she's not totally entangled in all the lawsuits just yet. That will come and we'll get to that. But, um, you know she's got she's got this which is actually making some money for her and then she does you know have this other side uh, side activity going on in Aspen i was wondering as we sort of begin to think about these relationships that do entangle her um there's a passage in your book which i would love for you to read for us it's on page 46 and uh this is kind of the it's interesting to me to see how when she is in town, she's got her guys doing the work out on the on the mountainside, and she's making her money there. But in town, she just kind of can't escape this complicated web. <laughs> and you you write um, on on forty six, kind of what this looks like on the day to day level. So would you just read the paragraph that starts um, Ellen Jack's operation of a saloon? Ellen Jack's operation of a saloon, and quite likely a brothel put her on the margins of respectable social circles. The legal system enacted laws and fines to constrain prostitutes from escaping their situations. Similarly, the legal system would allow Captain Jack's lawyers to impose and collect excessive fees for their services, which would constrict her ability to own and profit from the Black Queen mine and live her life as she pleased. Captain Jack's view of herself as having a high status because she was the widow of a naval officer, carried little weight in her current situation. Her ownership of a working-class saloon and boarding house placed her in a class of people that was viewed by the community's leaders as 
beneath them. Jane, she is caught at the intersection of so many different interests, right? Not just her own and what she's trying to achieve, but also of everyone that she comes into contact with. And I was just struck by the way that you you write about her ability. There's this tension here, right? I mean, she is trying to live her life as she pleased, and yet she's facing these kind of constrictions upon it from kind of all corners. So how, how did you see that playing out at this moment in her life? Well, one of the first things that she mentions in her autobiography is that she was born on the Fox household. And if I just go back a little bit in time, uh, uh, he was the founder of the Quakers in England way back when. And part of the Quaker spirit is to follow one's own inner light. And that's really what I see her doing throughout her life. Now, at the time, uh, Quakers were a rather devout, pious group of people, and she certainly did not follow the mores of a typical Quaker. Uh, in fact, one, one commentator said that Ellen Jack professed to have been raised as a Quaker, but her language belied her rearing. <laughs> so <laughs> she certainly had some salty language that was thrown in there on a few occasions. And but I really see that as as affecting her life and the way she viewed her life. She was a very independent person. She didn't do things like everybody else. And one thing I looked for is, you know, as a mine owner, which is she was she in respectable circles and she never was. So you can look at old newspapers and you can look at, well, who attended this wedding and who brought gifts? And when you do that, you know, what you see is that, okay, all the high society of people attended this wedding, high society in, in that town, say for all the, you know, judges and lawyers and future congressmen and, you know, that sort of thing. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. So you can see the development of the social circles and she was not in any of them. And so you kind of see who knew who and she was not a respectable person. And so I think to me that forms part of what's going on here that uh, some of the lawyers, you know, thought, well, they had a right to take what she had or to try to force her out of it. Uh, and so I, I think that possibly being a saloon owner, you know, she was accused of running a brothel. I think that kind of put her on the margins. Plus, perhaps just her own character uh, could have done that too. No, the more that you spend time with with Captain Jack, you realize she would never have been comfortable in those sort of genteel circles, right? And there's even one point in your book where I think she has the opportunity to kind of, you know, be bought out and settle down and so forth. And she's like, nope, too boring, too boring. Wouldn't do it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right, right. Which, bless her, I love that about her. I just, uh, that was so, I love it. I love it, I love it. So uh, before we wrap up on the on the Black Queen, I did want to ask you, I mean, there is this kind of interesting uh, sequence where, as the mine is producing, this is still in the you know first oh five or maybe ten years of its uh, lifespan. She gets these offers. I mean, she does actually get a a, a series of offers. She and her co-owner um, to you know for someone out east up in Pennsylvania and New York and so forth, you know, to buy it out. And she gets an offer of a hundred k. She gets an offer of eighty k. You know, and and I was just kind of curious, Jane, I mean, 
it is it is so much work to not just to get the thing going, but to keep it running and to keep everybody happy and to keep everybody paid. And, you know, the ore has to be good and you got to get the right tonnage and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Why not take the money and run, right? Why not take that 80K, that 100K that's being offered and pay off all your debts, which are numerous, and start something new? I mean, why, why didn't she want to do that? Yeah, I think that that's a good question. Um, you know, everybody calculates that a little differently. You know, do I hang on to the mine and possibly become a millionaire? Or do I settle for a much smaller amount of money? And um, those are the reports. Those were the amounts reported in the newspaper. And those need to be taken with a bit of a great assault as well. So, you know, I, I oftentimes found that uh, in the newspaper, they might have even reported inflated sale prices. And then you look at the actual records in the county and the actual sale prices is far less. So if that was the case, um, you know, that happened to her in other instances too. Uh, If the offers were actually that high, she certainly should have taken it. But then I think people are trying to hold out for even more uh, to see if they can get even more. And, you know, you don't really ever know what you're going to get. So um, probably would have been a good idea to take it, but you know what she eventually got was far less than that. It is funny because you know you have all of these vultures and parasites, you know, coming out of the woodwork at every step of the process. The lawyers want a piece of the mind. The other prospectors want a piece of the mind. The other owners and the rival claim stakers, they want a piece of the mind. Her brother, who may or may not exist, (laughs) which is this hilarious subplot in your book, right? You know, he gets involved assuming he exists. We think he does, but it's not clear. You know, even, I I think my favorite part was... Even the mineral surveyor for the federal government gets involved in sort of, you know, how are we really going to value this mine and who really owns this part and, you know, this 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 parcel of, of land, you know. And this guy, Robert Sterling, the mineral surveyor, I mean, he's bought off. He owns cl- st- sort of stakes in the area too. And you just, you realize that there are these, these vultures circling overhead I would have taken the money and run. I would have just said, get me out, you know. <laughs> I need a I need a clean break. You lot can go stuff yourselves, fight it out, do whatever you want. I'm out. I'm done. But she hung on, and I love that about her. That's amazing. Well, she had her own circle in Gunnison, and uh, she would win court cases in Gunnison. And then there was a group of people in Crystal who really wanted in on the mine there. You know, you start looking at the social connections there, the people associated with Al Johnson, who wanted, who basically said that that was his ore and owned the adjoining claim. And so, you know, you typically had groups of people who were vying for uh, these interests. So in some cases, she was able to make some allies that helped her. And then she also had a lot of conflict. But yeah, a lot of conflict over uh, trying to get a piece of the Black Queen and trying everybody trying to get rich themselves. And, you know, some people came out pretty well. And Al Johnson actually uh, did not uh, come out very well in the end. So So she wins that round. She wins that round. Well, we will pick this up again next week uh, by looking at some of the things that happened to her uh, later in life and seeing how how her fortunes 
uh, matured. But thank you so much for joining us this week. This has been a pleasure. I, I just, I love being out on the trail with her and it is such a joy. So thank you. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been Jane Bardall, author of Colorado's Mrs. Captain Ellen Jack, Mining Queen of the Rockies, a brand new title just published by the History Press. To order a copy, visit ArcadiaPublishing.com or your local independent bookstore. Join us next week as we travel to Chicago with author Harrison Fillmore in pursuit of organized crime, but not quite the outfit you might think. See you then. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael DeLoya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.